Well, hello and welcome to Flynn's Talk. It's the podcast where we're looking at all things to do with mental health in the veterinary field and exploring the many different people, Jez, who contribute to such a fabulous field that uh, look after our beautiful pets. How are you going, mate? Very well, as always. Thank you for having me by your side yet again. It's lovely to be in person. It is, and I'm enjoying the fact that we're getting to record together. Um, certainly makes it a lot more fun and I think it's uh, kind of feels like the old days back it when we did the community. It certainly right does. I saw a photo of that surface the other day from many years God. back. We had um, questionable haircuts and fashion sense, that's for sure. We still do. Um, it is good to have you here, mate, and it's good to have Covetris Global Technology yep. Solutions on board. Uh, this year, they're our podcast partner helping us to get the show out to more people um, to spread more of your stories, our stories, to the community um, in the vet field and non-vet field. and. They're really just getting behind us to help us um, extend that reach and, and of course, have more conversations like the one today, Jez, which uh, I'm really looking forward to because yeah. it's very different. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's sort of we we like to we like to explore different parts of the veterinary field, different different areas that that people work in um, that are sort of not really subsidiary to to vets, but sort of part of the multidisciplinary team that that are the vets. Mm. Yeah. Um, and this one's very interesting. She's she's a bit close to my heart as a social work student. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to uh, to hear what she's all about. Yeah, well, Dr. Alicia Kennedy, um, the social hearted vet. Yep. And she's known yep. um, at social hearted vet on Instagram. Uh, good friend of Jane Goodall, yeah. which we discovered. Yeah. Well, that um, <laughs> amazing. Leave that to the the, the interview. <laughs> but um, yeah, just another incredible person with. Uh, a, a really unique perspective and passion for mm, the field. And, yeah. um, Something that's only going to keep growing. Yeah, for sure. So, Jez, I reckon um, we'll just dive right in yep. and get cracking. What do Let's you do it. Thanks for th- thanks for making time, as I said before. Um, really appreciate that you're busy and the vet field at the moment is chockers. There's so much going on and you're involved in a lot of things, um, which we'll tap into and I think, We'll kind of take each thing in turn if we can, but I'd love firstly, you've um, had had an incredible pathway through many many different things. But just kind of take us through what would the what would the foreword be in the Alicia Kennedy book if um, it was to be penned? Oh wow, I don't know. <laughs> so I've been a vet for thirty five years, but I've been a lot of other things as well as a vet. I've been a mother. I've been a uh, very dedicated volunteer to the point that I say I suffer from OVD, which is obsessive volunteering disorder. Yep, uh, good one. With my commitment to the Jane Goodall Institute and the impact that she had in my life. How do you become involved with Jane Goodall? And then, like, have a friendship though? Like, has it become? Yeah, yeah. She's oh, my really? Friend. That's incredible. Yeah. <sighs> so, like, I'm I'm 57, so I grew up in the 60s. You know, she was my idol growing up yep. and then um, wanted to be Jane Goodall when I grew up. So obviously the love of animals was the, the connection. And then, yeah. you know, fast forward 30 years, she had fallen off the radar in National Geographic mm. and everything, but yeah. found myself living in China and a girlfriend sent me her book. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's Jane Goodall. And she has a global youth program. And at the time I had three little girls who are now in their 20s. So this is... This is back in 2001, so 20 years ago. Um, so we became involved with her global youth network and then I actually met Jane Goodall in Beijing, of all places, and brought her to Australia. When we moved back to Australia, I actually organised her first visit in 2006 um, and was one of the founders of the Jane Goodall Institute in Australia and it was 12 years of full-time volunteering for me. Wow, that's incredible. She's an incredible mm. part of my life, like my mentor and the voice in my head and, um, yeah, really, really very blessed to um, have her in my sphere, I think. Yeah, yeah that is incredible. I, I'm a published author. I was one of the early um, uptakers of puppy preschool in Australia. So, oh, you know, wow. I, I've come to accept with myself that I, I actually live 20, well, maybe 10 years ahead of where we're at. 
And I've got several examples of that now, but puppy preschool is the most relevant example to the vet community because I went to an AVA lecture and I heard Kirsty Sexel speak. This is back in the early 90s and she was the behaviour guru that brought puppy preschool to Australia. And I just sat there and went, oh, my God, that's the best thing I've ever heard of because this is well, this is when you were still in primary school. But back, back <laughs> yeah. in those days, people used to keep, keep their dogs isolated until they were four months old and they didn't get that socialisation. I was working in general practice. My focus as a vet has always been the people and the pet. I've never enjoyed cutting things. I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a dentist. Just let me out there in the front line dealing with the people so I could see the, the behavioural issues that the people were having. I came back to my three boy bosses, I called them at the time, and I went, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing because everyone will win. The client will win. The puppy will win. The practice will win because this is building your relationship with the practice. Now, I'm serious. They laughed at me and they went, that's girly stuff. If you want to do it, you can, but do it in your own time. And I said to them, 20 years from now, every practice in Australia will be running puppy classes. So in my own time, I got the second puppy preschool in Australia. So Kirsty pioneered it. She was my mentor. Spent a lot of time on the phone to her. Fast forward 20 years and puppy preschool is mainstream. As you say, not only having that relationship built um, early on, and, and many of us have had pets in our lives, like I point to Jeremy and myself here, um, but, you know, the broader Flynn's Walk group, and we're all so connected to this, not just because of our connection through Flynn, but our own um, being pet owners, mm, being pet parents. Love of animals. And um, it is, you you do foster a long-term relationship with your vet, don't you? And you can have a, just like you have a family GP mm. or, oh, yeah. or, or yeah. other specialist in your life, you can have a, your, your family vet. Yeah, so if you, you know, if you want to, summarize me in the forward of my book it is I've always had a fascination with the human animal bond and this you know really special relationship connection that we have with pets and how that impacts human health and well-being and that's what drives me every day in the work that we're doing now and it's something that's becoming sort of increasingly important especially with the last two years of the pandemic and lockdowns and everything that everyone already knows about about that human animal bond where there were and still are a lot of people out there who the animal is the only person they saw every day, person person in inverted uh, commas they saw every day um, or the only thing they spoke to and, and that, that bond becomes sort of their lifeline. Yeah, you got it. And getting into social work is just a place to get that more. Yeah. And it's not all rosy though. Like it's not all a happy place, the human-animal bond. It can be very flawed. It can be very damaged. It can be very dysfunctional. And, you know, they're the things that we address too. So, uh, you know, people that are over-attached to their pets um, can be problematic for the welfare of the pet. So I've just been having a conversation with a, uh, home euthanasia that I'm doing later today and you know this lady is really struggling to let go and I haven't even met the dog yet and I'll do the assessment when I go after this call but that dog is really starting to suffer so we advocate for the for the animals in in the human animal bond too yeah and in many ways like pets uh don't speak our language they have the, they've got their own no doubt and they've got a connection with us we've talked about that and we explored it with um dr tiffany howe on a previous episode uh and and looked at why we connect at that um intrinsic level with our pets but yeah it's really um it's stuff that's really in and close and it's at your heart it's at it's at our hearts as pet owners and and it's in it, i recently say recent 18 months ago a little bit more it's farewell my own pet with a home euthanasia my cat and it, it hurts like it really does and you need that reflection of someone else to kind of really guide you through that and we say that vets represent them their voice um in many ways and that is i suppose what you're saying but talk us through a little bit about how you approach that like because you've been uh, you were trained uh with technical skills um at university originally to do the dental and do the surgical stuff which you just said was never really your thing um how did you build the other side of it up and how do you go into those kind of situations and, you know, advocate for the pet? Because I'm, I'm interested at, at just how you kind of develop that for yourself. 
Yeah, so look, I think it's just been an innate interest. I I, I just love people. I love animals. So, you know, my drive to become a vet was because I loved animals and I wanted to help animals stay well. But once I started working in the industry, and I actually started working in the industry when I was 13, when I sort of pushed myself, because this is a long time ago, um, you know, did volunteering at the local vet clinic. He... I'd been asking him since I was 10 because my mum used to take our dogs there and he's like, when you're 13, you can come and do work experience. So literally on my 13th birthday, I'm knocking on the door saying, I'm here. So I, and I did, you know, I worked as a vet nurse all the way through uni and, and um, I realised that I actually love people as much as I love animals. And if I had to choose, I think it's probably about the same, 50-50. Um, and I am particularly love elderly people I've always had a an interest in their stories and so I found in practice working with elderly people that I connected with them and I used to get into trouble all the time because the consults would go longer than they should because we'd be talking about their their life and you know and um and I recognized that the importance of pets in people's lives changes so you go through life phases and the significance of this really beautiful thing called the human animal bond changes through life phases but as people so if you take an elderly person as an example if they find themselves on their own their pet is their sole companion that relationship a bit like what Jez was saying before becomes so much more profound and so much more important to their well-being and because of the phase of life that they're in, their capacity to keep their pet healthy and well can be compromised. And so the bad side of that is I actually witnessed some terrible cases of neglect, terrible, that I could have reported to the RSPCA, but I knew that it wasn't a lack of love, it was a lack of capability. And that that question and that observation and that understanding of the bond in those scenarios is what drove me to start thinking about well what do we need to do as a community to look after pets of senior people which was the original intention with cherished pets and it's so much more now but that was what I originally wanted to do was provide a dedicated vet service to seniors. Excellent and so so with cherished pets it's this is this is sort of what you do now it started as the pilot program back was it 2015 you started that? Yeah 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 with seven years old. You've a bit of the history, but sort of as well. What, what? How do how do you facilitate that bond, and how do you facilitate the looking after the welfare of the person, as well as looking after the welfare of the animal, and how that sort of intertwines with each other? Yes, good question. So it's really around your service model. So a, a lot of our signature services around connecting to our people. So I talk about pets and their people. So pet is the sense. Pet is at the centre of everything. Um, but connecting to our people and understanding what their capability is. So your average regular client is pretty straightforward. But once you start to be dealing with people who've got any kind of vulnerability, whether it's ageing or disability or mental health or circumstantial, whatever, and there's a load of vulnerability in our community now, it impacts their capacity to care for their pet. So you then in, you know, I'm trained as a vet, so my objective is what do I need to do to keep this pet healthy and well? What what are the issues? What's the treatment plan? Then I add into that, what's the capability of this human to deliver on what I suggest needs being done? And so then it's around planning and bringing in the support. So that's why, that's what's driven the evolution of our vet social work service is actually we get deeper into capability and planning and support and then building that support system. So everything that I do is easier said than done. And I called it right from the beginning. I knew I knew that I was jumping into the too hard basket and I call it my can of worms project. And this has probably been, I've done a lot of stuff. This is so hard sometimes that, a normal person probably wouldn't still be doing it, but that's where purpose comes into what keeps us going, even in the face of, you know, challenge. But it's a can of worms project and learning every day and evolving every day, but we've really crystallised something really special. 
through terrorist pets. And is this, is it something that you do, I mean, so me as a social work student, we talk about multidisciplinary teams. Yes. So is this something that's that's done, so you're, you're there advocating for the pet, um, there's the social worker there advocating for the person, there might be like a case support worker, there might be a GP, there might be an OT. Is this something that you work with the whole team around the person? Absolutely. And what actually I get a real giggle about is I didn't know any of that stuff, right? So it's been pointed out to me several times that I'm more of a social worker than I ever been. Yep. It's come very naturally. But we talk about, so say, what's your dog's name? Do you have a dog? Nina. Nina. So, Team Nina. What do we need to do to keep Nina? What sort of pet is she? She's a border terrier. Oh, gorgeous. Gorgeous. I've got a Cairn terrier there. Ah, nice. Very naughty little dog. Yep. But anyway, I love anything that's got terrier in it. Yep. So, so Team Nina, you know, what do we? what's her health care plan for the next 12 months? What are the issues? What might come up? And then we look at who are the people around Nina, the team Nina, that can support the delivery of the plan. And so once we go deeper into our veterinary social workspace, it's the veterinary team that are around what needs to happen for the pet, the social worker, the GP, the family, uh, the mental health case workers. We're very multidisciplinary. We're very collaborative in everything that we do. And that's what's exciting about where our organisation is positioned now in our region. So uh, we're in the um, Geelong region primarily, which is Wadawurrung country, and we get referrals from health care providers, aged care providers, mental health providers, who, because they're trained to look after the people, and and I'm getting excited now, but because of the development and and evolution of the human-animal bond in our community and the evidence that's coming out to support that, pets are integral to human health and well-being. And that's my main advocacy is the role of healthy companion pets and a thriving human-animal bond in human health and well-being. So the human health service providers, whether it's aged care, mental health, disability, domestic violence, homelessness, they're now learning by delivering their services, how important pets are to their clients. And if you, I I say to health practitioners all the time, if you have a client with a pet and you're not factoring that pet into your client's health plan, you're not serving that client. Pets are integral. The best example of that, I love bringing it back to examples, is we regularly get referrals from mental health because people are refusing to go into care because they won't be separated from their pet. And, you know, they're really challenging cases because um, we don't always have a strong bond with them if it's a crisis care request. We don't, they don't already know us, so there's a lack of trust. So it's around connecting with them, building that trust, and then we create crisis pet care plans so that you can go and get yourself healthy and well and we'll get you back together as soon as possible. And has that been something that you've found it's, has it been hard for, for you and for your service to sort of be taken seriously or to be accepted into that into that person healthcare side of things? Or has that been something that's been sort of openly accepted and welcomed? Such a good question. So, so the, answer, the answer to that is yes and no and both ends. In, so we're seven years old and I love talking and getting out there and I'm, you can tell I get excited and I'm passionate. It's well, excitement and passion are very welcome in Flynn's Walk and Talk space, so bring it. Yes. So I would say for the first few years, it was very much who we were talking to. Yep. If we got a caseworker on the other end of the phone who had their own pet and got it, yep. yeah. then yep. they were on our team. Yeah. Now, fast forward a couple of years, so I think a critical event in our journey as an organisation is uh, we're a dual entity organisation so we run our private practice that delivers the vet social work service. We weren't calling it a vet social work service back then, we were just doing what we felt was right. Um, We have our charity division, our partner charity, Cherish Pets Foundation, which is an independent registered charity. The chair of the board, Judy, has been instrumental in our development because she's got a social work background. 
Um, I went to a, a human animal anthrozoology conference in Europe back in the days that you could go to Europe. <laughs> remember those? <laughs> yeah, remember those days? And there was a fellow there from, they were talking about the master's program at the University of Tennessee in vet social work. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, that's what we do. You know, mm. what we do actually has a name. So once we were able to give it a definition, we definitely got people's ears. Veterinary social work is, is an emerging field and it bridges the gap between human health services and animal health services. So Judy came to me literally two years ago this month and she she supervises Deacon social work students as part of her job. She said, why don't we have a couple of students on placement? And I'm like, yes, let's do that. What fun. Well, they still work for us. I'm thinking about when I have to do my placement hey, next year. You got one we, coming. We you're in, like you. I would love to have you on placement <laughs> because it is an emerging field, and and our veterinary social work model is different. It, it's very similar to the University of Tennessee one, but we're also a lot more community centred. So the University of Tennessee vet social work is is primarily is embedded within the veterinary profession, which is relevant to this podcast and the audience of this podcast but a lot of what we do is with the community outreach and getting referrals from health service providers and I can tell you now about 30% of the pets that we end up looking after that get referred to us by the caseworker have not been to a vet in the last two or three years and a lot of them are suffering because of that so we are reaching animals in the community that are getting neglected not from a lack of love but from a lack of capability so it's hugely exciting so um the elise and esther joined us as students and it really helped us to start to consolidate our service with a distinction because up until that point i was running around like a headless trip doing all of it with a couple of my incredible social-hearted vet nurses and original volunteers but we needed to make this service sustainable we had to really give it structure and put all the systems and processes and all of those things that founders just run away from we've now got you know we've got the team doing that and when their placement came up to end I'm just like you have to stay so we created an internship role for them and they're both still employed by us and the team is growing we've got a fantastic student with us now Josh um so we've had one two we've had seven students now hmm. yeah wow. oh that's fantastic and um yeah well done because it's just an incredible thing uh, and i uh, just going back quickly even just to that moment where you got a name for it or you appreciated mm, yeah. that it was something more than just what you were already doing or found to be the right mission so that that must have been a, a pretty pretty cool feeling where, when that clicked and um i was just thinking about um the fact that uh, as vets, um, and we talk about the vet field and, and everyone in it, but for this particular discussion, veterinarians in particular, train for a long time. Um, it's it's tough going. It's tough to get in in the first place. There's a hell of a lot of day one competency, competencies <laughs> you have to uh, nail in order to get registered and do all of that stuff and then find a job. Um, we talk about sort of trying to add more wellness self-wellness well-being stuff into the vet course all right there's no time we can't do it so we're certainly um not going to try and get vet veterinarians to do a social work degree alongside their vet degree right this is not turning veterinarians into social workers this is i I suppose allowing vets who have got an interest in this space to unlock it if they if that's what they feel they'd like to do likewise the other way where we may have an emerging or existing social worker in our presence um to maybe learn about how what it means what an animal's needs are and and you and i talked about on the phone before we did this how you kind of start to build complementary skill sets and and have that overlap in the middle is that something that you've found that's become like becoming more realistic yeah absolutely it's a really important point to make so i predict bit like i did with puppy preschool that in 20 years you know every every practice would like puppy preschool would be mainstream, the veterinary social worker role will 
become integrated into the industry because it fills a gap, but it is a specific professional role that needs that social worker uh, background to it. So you get a qualified social worker and you, so it's like a special interest and a specialty, you develop them into veterinary social work because there's uh, so many nuances, I suppose, once you go. It's like an extension of social work. At the same time, in the vet industry, vets need to be vets. Within the industry, there will be vets and nurses who are naturally social hearted who can then do some extra training and that awareness piece that you were talking about. And by bringing that into their day-to-day work, it will have an impact on their well-being and their job satisfaction. Within the larger veterinary teams, I definitely see a role for having champions of veterinary social work within the within the business who've had extra training. That can be like the first line, a bit like within, you know, I've worked in large practices where you have the vet that's got a special interest in dentistry or birds or whatever. So you've got that sort of internal referral framework and then with training, knowing when you actually need to refer to a qualified vet social worker. And so building up that network in the industry um, is where I see it going. Well, a bit like easier said than done, but it'll happen. The conversation's out there now. Yeah, exactly. I was saying to Jack when we were just before we got on, when we were chatting, how how cool it would be to have a veterinary outreach support worker. And he's like, oh yeah, that's that's what Alicia does. Yeah. Yeah. But having having that person, as you say, become become integrated into the network of, of veterinary practices, yeah. that that to me sounds like an amazing thing. It's a resource, and I was having a conversation the other night with uh, Wendy Till, who is a she's done the University of Tennessee Masters program. She's based in Perth, um, and Robin Whitaker, who works within the ABA because we're actually going to be presenting about veterinary social work at the ABA conference in May. And, you know, we were, that, you know, I often think of it as a referral pathway. Wendy's like, it's, you know, it's a resource. It's both of those things. But the other important thing is, is it's a lens through which you can approach your veterinary work. So I'm pretty passionate about developing the resources and the training for mainstream vets just to pick up a few things that can shift the shift the way you view your clients because clients are regarded as the enemy in our profession generally speaking and I don't think that's serving anyone it's not serving the multidisciplinary team approach to pet care but if you see the client as the enemy you're you're you've got that tension in the consult consult room and the veterinary social worker lens because it's compassionate and social hearted and inclusive and understands humanity actually brings people into the same sphere and that can actually really shift how people enjoy their work it's um there's a lot to be said about i think i've, I've heard it expressed as um reserve judgment or, or generous assumptions mm. right as well which is kind of a a thing in life as well yep. too where and, and i'm just going back to your point there about that that dialogue or relationship across a consult table um which let's let, let's be fair too is at, at a clinical level it, it is exactly that and, and it's it's a time where um, there's stress and emotion involved and there might be other family members connected to mum or dad uh, who were there with the pet so there's a lot to sort of be said about that framing and that's not necessarily going to be something that all vets qualify through university and through their pathways into work will be drawn to because um, at the core it is science field of, mm. of, and it's problem solving and it's um, it's medicine. So it's it's a cool thing to think because what we've tried to do through this platform as well is kind of provide an insight into the amazing yeah. and diverse opportunities that there are in the vet field. And this certainly feels like another one. And that's the reason why we've got you here chatting um, because we've looked at, you know, there are roles through government and research and epidemiology and to get away from practice because so many veterinarians have potentially identified... Yeah clinic's not for me, I can't cop the spray from the client, things like that. So this is amazing that um, I guess and it looks at that uh, the compassion satisfaction side of things too where we probably harp a bit a lot on yep. compassion fatigue yeah, yeah, and yep. that's important because we've been able to discuss 
why that um, comes about and ways to mitigate that. Uh, but there's that compassion satisfaction piece in your work as well, where I suppose um, things went right. You made a difference. You've seen change. Uh, contributing in then to the broader piece and Vanessa Rolf has done work around professional quality of life and the contributing factors into making that better or worse and, and how that works. So, I mean, uh, you know, there's not really a question there. That was more a reflection from myself, but, you know, uh, over to you. But um, Yeah, because you're inspiring me to comment. You guys are so gorgeous. So everything that you just said, so, you know, vets are technically trained and there's, like you said, it's such a diverse profession, full of humans. So humans are such an interesting species. So there's diversity there. And as the industry, as the profession has evolved, and I've seen it because, you know, when I was first a vet 35 years ago, you didn't refer anything. You had to do it all, which was a bit sad for me because I just think, you know, and I found myself in mixed practice and, yeah, anyway, we won't even go there. But um, there is diversity for special interests. So the veterinary social work space is an area for the other vets and vet nurses too because it really fits well for vet nurses who are often on the front line in reception or dealing with people. Um, but it's an area to develop special expertise in that can actually really add job satisfaction and that whole compassion satisfaction piece. But it's not for everyone, just like I don't like dentals and orthopedics. Never did that. So it's around people finding their flow. You know, the, the three ingredients to happiness is finding your flow, so doing what you love where you kind of lose a sense of time when you're in there. Service, service. So the veterinary profession is about service. Um, and gratitude, so counting your blessings kind of thing. And I think that's really powerful in that compassion, satisfaction piece. But two more things there that if it's not for you, if you at least know within my profession, I don't have to take on some of, we talk about human complexity. So humans are complex. And when we've got, when we're dealing with well, our team, fellow team members too, but in the context of the client, you think about the rise in mental health in our community and the sometimes dysfunctional level of attachment to companion pets, you know, our, our vets are really at the front line, which is what's driving a lot of the challenge and, and it's heartbreaking and it's sad. But if we can, I'm trying to think of the word, like there's a word for it, but build resilience and capacity and strength within the profession that there's, someone to go to if you've got a complex human, whether it's a hotline for support or a vet social worker in your community or somebody on your team that's done some extra training, then you don't feel alone and you can resolve and cope with things much better. So that leads me into the second thing that I wanted to talk about and Jez would have a perspective on this. But one of the things that I've learned, I spend more of my time with social workers now than I do with vets. Um, is the debriefing and how powerful the debriefing is. And when I was working in general practice, we would get individual counselling but and we would have, without question, informal de debriefings in the tea room. So if you'd had a traumatic case, you know, but the formal debriefing that our social workers guide um, is a really powerful way of working through crisis and difficult cases and coming to a place where you feel supported, you feel normal, you feel it's okay to be this way. Do you have a comment on that, Jess? It's it's such a good point because I so my my partner's an emergency nurse, um, and I was speaking to her. So I've I've just finished up as a job as a as a homeless support worker. Um, and when I got that job, that was my first job in the industry. Um, and I was speaking to her about supervision and everything that goes along with that. And she's like, "Oh yeah, we we don't do that. We don't have supervision. We don't. We. I mean, if there's if they have like a bad trauma or a really bad case, then they might informally get together and debrief. But and that's similar thing in the veterinary field. Talking to yep. talking to all the people we have, there isn't that formal support integrated into the service. That to me just seems crazy. I mean, 
you're dealing with really hard cases a lot of the time. You're dealing with euthanasias. You're dealing with difficult clients, difficult people. And to not have that formal support to wrap around you from your from your boss from whoever it is from from the veterinary social worker um yeah that that to me seems seems crazy and yeah so i think i think we've now um you know discovered what your role is (laughs) honestly because that's part of veterinary social work and and it's it's coming you know and i'm on a um i have been recognized for my passion in this space and got the amp tomorrow makers grant last year and it was very clear in that that you know I'm on a mission now so we say our purpose is to enable the benefits of a healthy companion pet I've got healthy in there for a reason because if they're not healthy you've got a whole other set of issues so enable the benefits of a healthy companion pet and a thriving human animal bond to be accessible to all people I'm now on a the next seven-year mission of integrating and embedding the veterinary social work service across the industries so that the health service providers think of a vet social worker if they've got a client with a pet and the veterinary world think of the vet social worker if they're dealing with complex human elements. I love it. It's fan- Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, and it's, it's huge. And like you said about earlier about the can of worms that you opened, but... You opened it and and it and it and it flooded out. So that is an incredible thing, like to put a feather in your cap for that. And it's and it's. I, I could only see it growing, and I think there's oh, a yeah. need, like for yeah. all the reasons we've discussed. So that's that's incredible. And uh, and you just sort of touched on there that um, seven years, although it's thirty five years in vet, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot more than just the seven that you've built to this point. But the next seven, and I was going to ask you, what is next for Cherish Pets? What's next for Cherish Pets Foundation? What is what? What can we do as just pet owner punters? And Jez has, is on a, a an awesome pathway now as well. But what is it? What does it look like next? But how can the community help that to grow? What what can we contribute? So we are definitely wanting. So seven years in, it's really been the last three years that things have consolidated but it is a can of worms and it's easier said than done so the question always comes up how do we scale this or share it with the broader community Um, and that's where a lot of our focus and attention is now Um, so definitely looking at and the AMP grant is supporting that process but how we take this little treasure that we've embedded in our practice so we run a private vet practice and veterinary social work is just part of it. So I can't actually imagine ever working in a vet practice that didn't have veterinary social workers, but it's how we can, uh, through training and, and providing resources, support veterinary teams around what I was saying before, the lens of the veterinary social worker and some of the concepts, looking at upskilling members of veterinary teams to become um, more confident in dealing with complex people and then looking at how we can embed the veterinary social worker role. So that's, you know, conversations with universities and, and the Australian Social Worker Association. And so being a visionary, I want everything to happen yesterday. And, you know, part of my pain and growth as a human, you know, in my late 50s is these things take time which frustrates me, but you surround yourself with incredible people. So, you know, we've got such a great team working on this in our little corner of the world. We've got uh, the ABA really listening to us and engaging in conversations, so a lot of support there. Um, And there's, you know, a group in the West who are really keen to pilot it because to take what we've built here and put it somewhere else will need – it's going to evolve again. So it's being receptive to that. yeah, so to answer your question, in the next seven years, seven years from now, the vet, there'll be a veterinary social worker agency and veterinary social workers in the community that can connect to the veterinary teams and also to the health service providers. Yeah. Well, I'm in my second of four years of my social work degree. So by the time I finish, I'm hoping to be doing a veterinary social work course subject as part of it. So hopefully you can get that happening in the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're my next recruit, Des. I'm sorry. I love it. I'm, I, I'm very excited talking to you. I, I love everything you're about. 
it's very exciting. And and I had another aha moment when the SBS uh, Insight program did that episode on um, you know mental health and suicide yep. in the profession. Yeah, and that was May 2020. I remember it. It was cold and wet, and it was just at the beginning of all the COVID stuff. And I remember sitting there going, "Oh my lord," or whatever. We are part of the solution to this problem because everything is necessary and it's complex and it's not easy. So all the wellness programs and dealing with the mental health issues and having all of that support is essential. I feel that the veterinary social worker comes in earlier in the pathway in a preventative sense because if you've got veterinary social worker resources available to vet teams, so that these young vets who are technically trained but they can refer tricky people, do you physically feel a sense of relief yeah. when I say that? Yeah. I'm just like, that yeah. is, brings relief to our profession and it's like we we cannot give up. So I have days where I'm literally under the blanket saying I can't do this anymore and then it's like I think about that bigger purpose for the profession that I love dearly also the general community, and we will keep going. And it's around collaboration and conversations. That's why I wanted to connect to you guys because I love everything that Flynn's Walk is about. So we can do this. And, and you know, the other areas of veterinary social workers, so it's burnout and compassion fatigue and supporting veterinary teams. It's domestic violence and pets. It's supporting people through grief and loss and bereavement. And then it's the role of the human-animal bond, animal-assisted interventions. But more so in our space, it's the role of companion pets as, and I'm doing this in inverted commas because this is an audio podcast, um, emotional support animals. So I don't actually like the term emotional support animals, but when I say that, people get what I mean, and that's the term that they use in the States. With the mental, with the rise in mental health, so many clients that we deal with really struggle and their pet is the reason that they get out of bed every day and the veterinary social workers can uh, integrate their care and their compassion and, and you know, service without judgment and support those people. Ultimately, that has a direct benefit for the welfare of the pet. I've had clients who won't go to the vet because they're scared of what the vet's going to say to them. or It's not just about financial. This is not just about people who can't afford to pay. We have lots of people that can afford to pay. They just um, lack the physical or the psychological capability to deal with what's coming. Mm. And, uh, and as well, on the other hand, like we through talking to vets, we hear so much that they've got all this training for animals. They know animals inside and out, everything to fix them, but there's no training on how to deal with people. So you get that you get that difficult client, you get that difficult person, and you just don't have that awareness or the competency to be able to do those do those um, do those meetings in sort of a not a not a not compassionate way, but yeah. but have that uh, have that theory and have that ability behind you to be able to deal with those people. Yeah, the interpersonal yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can plonk a cat or the dog there, and the vet can can fl- fly into action and, and start to work out through diagnostics and scans and all that sort of stuff what might be going on and we know yes there's financial implications and things attached to that that we're very aware of and we like to share that too however if it's coming at you that's there and there's an emotional sort of tidal mm. wave as well be it aggression in the worst cases you know or, or, or abuse and things like that Yes, it happens, folks. If you're listening and you weren't aware, that stuff goes on in, in clinics um, and in receptions in view of other people. To then to have that and, and to be trying to do the science bit as well is a lot. And we've talked about how you build up that interpersonal mm. stuff and that's, that's what we were talking about. Like, you know, and that's what um, is another way to mitigate. Yeah. And it's also about, yeah, and it's recognising that you can have boundaries around that. So my personal learning as a social-hearted vet, is trying to save everything at every cost, which is not sustainable. So as I've matured as a human in in the industry and in life in general, it's like creating a a system and a process and a framework so that people can access support, but you've got very clear boundaries in there. So that doesn't mean you have to cop abuse and things like that. And, And what it means, you know, one of the scenarios that I often think of 
I am in awe of vets that work in emergency centres. I just, it's just something that I could never do. I tried it for a bit. Yeah, they do incredible work. It is. And I cry when I watch the little YouTube clips and, you know, my anxiety used to go through the roof when I, when I was in emergency situations. So they are, I'm in awe of them. And, um, and I, I run my own practice now and I'm very mindful of the costs of delivering the service. And, you know, so we have this constant tension. But if I was a human who was, uh, you know, one of the, the fastest going growing demographic for homelessness in Australia now is women who are 55 plus, mental health issues, uh, divorce, no, very little superannuation, difficulty getting employed. That is a typical terrorist pet client. I can tell you now that their attachment to their pets is huge. And if I was one of those clients and I fronted up to emergency at 10 o'clock at night and my baby was really unwell and I was told that because you can't pay so much now, you know, we can't deliver service, I would go off my nuts. So what we're trying to address that tension point with, Okay, we you know obviously you do what you have to do, but referring them to a veterinary social worker because it's it's around listening to people, acknowledging the bond, seeing the bond, and giving them following a process to come up with a solution. And there is often a solution out there if you can take the time to explore. Now it's not always that easy in a crisis situation, but I I think that's where the vet social worker role really fits nicely into the emergency setting. Is it diffuses that tension, takes the pressure off the vet and the receptionist, and this is somebody who's qualified and trained and able to manage those conversations. And then there's a whole network of support out there through different crisis funds and through their packages and things like that, yeah. And, and it, it, yeah, it's creating more space for the vet and nurse, whoever's involved, to be that and and identify this is where my skill set runs out um, yeah. and, I, and, I need, yeah. and I need assistance yeah. uh, from, from someone who specializes in this spot. Yeah. And you know what? I've got her phone number and here, here it is or we'll get that happening yeah. you know, and our clinic yeah. knows the process. Well, as, some, as you said yeah. about those professional boundaries that you know, yeah. knowing yep. what you can do, knowing what you can't do and knowing who to talk to. Yes, it, that's in a nutshell. We, we all know what it feels like to sort of try and extend yourself yeah. out beyond to try and fix things that you don't, ha- you know, your knowledge is dissipating but you're like, well, I'm in deep now. I've got to try and get this fixed and you're not looking after yourself doing that and you're doing yourself any favours. So... It all it all makes sense, it, and and it, it clearly does because you're doing it, um, and you're doing it well. So, as almost finally, before we wrap up, so the Cherish Pets Foundation, you, you talk about being your as uh, your charity partner, um, as part of the Cherish Pets Network and, and the work that you do. How do we? How can we help make that grow, and 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 in turn help that help the community? Absolutely. So. Cherish Pets Foundation is a registered charity with tax deductibility, like Flynn's Walkies. So if the concept of veterinary social work lights your fire and you want to get behind us, we, we are strategically looking at how we can go beyond our corner of the world. So it's as simple as making a donation, a tax deductible donation via our website, and or getting touched directly with me if you're interested in supporting our development because one of our, you know, we're speaking at the ABA conference and what I'm really trying to do is build the movement around this in the industry, build the community of people that see it and get it and because I'm a great believer in conversations and connecting people to uh, progress, to take action. And so it's Cherish Pets Holistically and Cherish Pets Foundation is what, helps to fund the veterinary social work that you do. So yeah. if, yeah. yeah, in summary, if you want to support it, then the place to go is, um, we'll link it at Cherish Pets Foundation and through your website, we'll link that in the show uh, info and in our article as well. But honestly, honestly thank, thank you, you mm. because I, I see this today as, as this has been an amazing discussion. Mm, yeah. We've, we, we haven't, haven't been into this space at all and I feel like it was well overdue and I'm so glad we got the chance to connect. And I'm also also very grateful that you've come from doing a lot this week and today and you're about to go off and do something else, which I think speaks volumes of 
who you are and the capacity that you've got for the community and, and your care and passion for this is just, it's, it's so clear. So thank you. I love you guys. So uh, we're going to come to Flynn's Wharf on the 1st of May too. Perfect. We're going to grab a little team from Terrace Pet and so I'll be able to meet you formally, not just outside the ice cream shop. And um, yeah. you, you guys are amazing what you're doing. So thank you. This is all part of that team approach to uh, creating a safer profession for everyone. Exactly. Well said. Thank you. Well, Jez, uh, you know, life's busy. Mm. Weekends are busy, but for Alicia to give up her time and have yeah. a chat, knowing the day she's had and, and the day she still has to come. Yep. And, and we've recorded this quite late on a, on a Saturday yeah, yeah, at yeah. four or five o'clock. And, um, still working. She's still working. It, it, it's truly... Uh, <laughs> anyone who says they're in it for the money is... Um, yeah, just completely wrong because it's it's passion led and, and it's and it's led with the heart and that's so clear with Alicia. So. Yeah, everyone who's just listened to that will hear the passion that she has for yeah. for the for the vets, for the clients, for the people, for the animals, for everyone. She's yeah. she's out there to take care of them all. Oh yeah, and she's inspiring a movement. Uh, and so yeah, we, we will share the links and, and yep. ways you can get in touch with her through our channels. Um, but Jez, the other thing to remember at the core and center of all of this is our approach for mental health and well-being, And we like to give people some resources just to assure you that there's help if you need it. Exactly right. There are supports available. If you do need them, there's Beyond Blue, Kids Helpline, Headspace, Are You Okay? There are numbers on their websites. Please use them if you need them. Please look at them even if you don't think you need them right now because they can always be handy. If it is a crisis or you do need urgent help, you can call Lifeline 131114. They do have their their text service. They do yeah. have their online chat service. There's the suicide callback service. Or else if it is an emergency, call triple zero. Yeah, exactly. Well said, mate. And uh, those resources are listed on our website yep. as well. And we're building and building um, and keep adding things to our site so that uh, hopefully community members out there, vet or non-vet, you can jump on and find support exactly as well as the fact we're holding conversations jazz in person with our walks coming up sunday may the first yeah in melbourne and canberra sunday may 22 yep. um so there's going to be free coffee free sausage sizzle we're going to walk together get everyone out there have a chat um everyone's welcome to come down walk if you want to talk yep. if you feel like it and we're looking forward to that yep. jump on the facebook page all the info's there exactly um but thank you for your time mate and thanks to alicia for her time today and we'll be chatting again very soon exactly